the truth is that I am getting more out of it that I can give. That's the truth. Because I couldn't live with all the words. But seeing others, having contact with students and curators has enriched my life in immense ways, immensely. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. We are sitting in freeze at the art fair having this conversation on a particularly warm, noisy day in an art fair. In this episode, we're speaking with Marlies Hessel Arts. Marlies was born in Munich and lived in Mexico for many years before moving to the United States. Her wide-ranging collection of over 2,000 works features international artists and is housed at the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College in New York, which she co-founded in 1992. In 2006, CCS Bard inaugurated the Hessel Museum of Art with a major expansion of its galleries where Marlies's collection is on view for students, scholars, and visiting curators. Marlies also established the Library and Archives at the Center for Curatorial Studies. The library contains over 25,000 volumes of art-related literature. Welcome, Marlies, and thank you for joining us today at Freeze for this podcast of Collect Wisely. We're delighted that you have made time for us on a very busy day to talk to us about your really notable and long-standing distinguished collection and the history of collecting that you've uh, engaged in over many, many years. Do you remember the very first thing you bought? Oh yes, um, I actually remember one or two things. One was uh, two German artists not famous at this point and known, but so really when I started collecting I entered simply by accident in Munich, the Heiner Friedrich Gallery. Uh, one of the most famous yeah. galleries And this is where century. I actually learned how to collect and how to think about art. And even though at that time, in the late 60s, I didn't think of building a big collection, but I did want to own art. For some unexplicable reason, I wanted to own art. I didn't want to only look at Had it. Had your family been collecting? Or no. Where did that I, inclination come from? I grew up in uh, after the war in Germany, and there was no art. There was only destruction and poverty. So the only thing that was my happy hours were when, when I went to the wonderful Baroque churches in uh, Bavaria, that's where I grew up, and the King Ludwig castles. This is where I felt safe. That's where I felt that there is a good world out there. And I think this is where really where my life, collecting life started. Was, my love 
for art started. Was that, um, when you say a safe place, is the post-war years post -war in Germany years. under yes. Reconstruction, yes. a very particular moment. Yes. Was there a, um, you know, I mean, you talk about a safe place. Do you mean a really physical safe place or a psychologically safe place for you? Psychologically safe place. I later on learned, years, years after collecting, I learned that it was also the moment where I had kind of a dialogue that I did not have at home. The generation before me, what was my mother, they didn't speak. None of these people that went through the war, right. there was no discussion at home. But when I went, when I later on learned to go to museums, I could go to any museum just to have a dialogue with works or to learn about history, to ask questions. Everything I hadn't learned when I was a child. When you found your way to Heiner Friedrich's gallery, Yes. And, I mean, that would have been a very intimidating experience for a young person to go into Heiner Friedrich's gallery. So a notoriously uh, rigorous individual. Were you put off or daunted in any way, or did you just march it, in and... I just, I just started to go to galleries. And I went into Heiner Friedrich. It was really just... I wanted to go to galleries. And, yes, it was intimidating. It was intimidating, especially Heine. The rest of the people at the gallery were not. They're all young girls, they're like me, and it's very relaxed. But Heine took over as soon as he had somebody interested in art. And I, I do, I'm grateful to Heine that how he showed me to collect the strictness of how to think about art, what is was, was the responsibility <laughs> that you have when you buy a work of art, responsibility you have for a work. I mean, Heine was a notoriously rigorous individual and had very fixed yes. views on, on art in many respects. Was that something that you were expecting of the art world? I mean, you could sort of conjecture that, you know, collecting the art world would be a very laissez-faire journey that you would fall into, but you had a tutor who was very rigorous. Was that well, unexpected? Well, that's how you, how you think today. I don't think, I didn't think that way. I realized it was serious because the art I was confronted with was totally foreign. As I told Did you, you know, understand I was figurative art in Baroque uh, churches and the Ludwig Castle. So suddenly I was into Carl Andre and uh, Dan Flavin and... Oh God, all the American artists. Extremely of, alien landscape at that point. So, but that they were so convinced and so convincing and the, of the importance of that work and that I was just simply fascinated by it. And, and, and were you an immediate convert? Little by little, no. The, the first things that I was able of financially and also get myself to were works that I collected like uh, Basilitz and Richter and I wasn't able to get to, I couldn't even afford uh, Donald Schott or any of the other minimalist so, uh, artists at, at that Heine showed. At that moment, were the Americans being shown by Heine in, yeah. in Germany more expensive than the German artists or? Oh yes, you know, you see, maybe, I can't even because there were no bills at the time, let's say I paid maybe $500 for a Gerhard Richter and wow. Dan Flavin or Donald Chott or uh, Cy Twombly, they went from 2000 or pop art went from 2000 to $5,000. It was under, uh, they were, couldn't even think about it. But I felt really um, good of being part of that very young group that was there. And Heine, yes, he was a dictator. And the funny thing was, that when I showed him, and I can't think of the name at this of these two young German artists that I had bought, 
at one point, he said to me, that has to go. <laughs> and he said, bring her here. <laughs> I sell it, that has to go. And I bought, I started buying the artists and in did he, Palermo. Did he, did he recycle the income for you? Absolutely. No, I didn't have any money at that time. In my mid-twenties, early twenties, I didn't have any money that I would save it away. But this is a recurrent, um, this is a recurrent conversation that we're having with people who almost have a kind of uh, an imperative to collect at a young age. And, you know, at that point, you were really stretching to buy those things. Oh, it wasn't like, you know, you were vast amounts of disposable income and it, it didn't matter. Any purchase of $500, you bought a Richter, well, a fortune. brilliant for you, but that was a lot of money for you. And so where did the confidence come from to believe that, you know, that was okay and you didn't worry about spending it on the rent or the electricity bill or something? Well, I didn't have to worry at the for, on, on that level for rent or electricity bill. I had to everything extra, you know, for example, I wouldn't buy an extra blouse, I had the money for extra pair of shoes. I would put it aside, put it see, to go to Heiner Friedrich. And, so, and, and were, your, were, was, were your friends, the media that you were uh, mixing in that time, did they understand what you were money. doing? I guess when I had, no. I, I was married at the time. My husband, all he did, he said to me, God, you have bad taste. <laughs> well, uh, we, so we, we, we need to let, drop him a note and say that he got that one wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, was, that was it. So if I bought it, I didn't buy that many early on, you know, just limited. But when I bought it, I would hide it in the closet for a while so he wouldn't cut down <laughs> the extra funds. So this, this clearly was not a shared passion. Oh no, it wasn't. I was so, always alone in my collecting. So you were alone in your collecting. You're a young woman who um, didn't have vast disposable income. So you were putting it, aside money to do this. It, who it, didn't necessarily well, have a group of friends that were supportive of it. So where does that passion come from, do you think? Where does that single-minded passion come from? I think it was an emotional need because I could have gone to museums by itself. So why did I need to go and own it? I wanted to own the art, wanted to have my thing. So it's the, really emotional. The ownership, having these things in your world, entering your world as part of your identity, really, was very important to you. I think, uh, yes, this too, but I think it was another factor. We had lost our home. During the war, we I had lost my father, basically lost everything. Right. So it was, I'm sure it has something to do with that too, to just holding on to something that I selected that was important to me. A lot of people. I mean, who, we need a therapist to analyze this, <laughs> but that's how I interpret it. Because well, perhaps this is self therapy. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of people who would have gone through that would have gone in a very different direction. It could have become very a very negative experience for them, a very difficult experience for them. But you somehow turned this into a very positive thing where you were choosing to live with works that were probably challenging but beautiful and were uplifting, spiritually yes, and absolutely. aesthetically and emotionally uplifting. Yeah, it was both. It was aesthetically uplifting sometimes, otherwise it was just simply a desire. I think my generation was especially 
interest in what happened in America. For my generation, everything, and it goes for Heiner Friedrich, everything that came from America was good, that whole generation. His partner at the time in the gallery, Franz Stalin, he was more for the German art, but Heine was only looking to America, 90%, I would say. He might not like when I say that now, but Heine's, Heine was looking to America, and I did too. America was it. So, yes, there were some German artists that I liked and obviously collected, because I couldn't afford the minimal art yet. or. Yeah. Uh, so, but it was where I looked. It was intellectually challenging too. I was intellectually challenged and I wanted to learn and go deeper what that was all about. Has the intensity of that emotion and that psychological need for you as a collector from a very early age been maintained throughout your life? Is it as vital a force for you now as it was then? Oh, absolutely. I still have to control myself not getting lost. I mean, not getting lost in spending too much money because I never had the, the fortunes. It just, it's just, yeah, I had to always really think through what I was buying. I really had to be on top of why I would do what and really think what it meant in history because within about five or eight, ten years of collecting, I did want to, uh, I had enough to have in the house, I did want to have a collection that I one day was going to give away. And that was very early on. So the collection, even though it is now some 2,000 items, yeah. and it's effectively housed in a public institution yeah. at Bard College, has remained for you a very personal commitment. And oh, it, yeah. it is very much a very personal collection. Yeah. I, I do, at this point, really look trying to document history. I started that probably in the 80s when I was very sure how am I going to do that when you know the art market. Am I going ahead here on, on your no, questions? Not at all. That's um, when the art market like in the late 70s especially in the 80s exploded and this aesthetic, the strict aesthetic guidelines that I was trained in were at Heiner Friedrich's gallery when, when got lost and we could collect anything. So there was a time I did, I felt getting lost. I was so, I felt so free. Oh my God, now I can do whatever and I would start buying anything for a short while. And, 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 and then I said, I have to focus. And I focused on issues of identity. Uh -huh. And that's what I wanted to collect. That started uh, when I started collect in the early 80s, I started collect Maplethorpe. And uh, from there on, I focus more and more issues of identity. And, and would you say that that's one of the sort of central tenets of the collection, or central yes. threads of the collection yes. that you there could is, identify? Yes, that's where I have gone since well, mid eighties. Right. I started cultural identity, feminist sexuality. Yeah, pol politics. Obviously, there's conceptual art. So I, I want to take you back just for a second because it's extremely interesting. You're talking about a period when the art world was very small yes. and uh, the players in the art world were, you could literally number them on two hands. Uh, and it, you know, one could argue that it was a much easier time to be a collector if you were collecting because the conversation was much narrower. And here we are in the early stage of the 21st century 
with an explosion of interest in culture, but you are as voracious and passionate a collector as ever. How do you navigate your way through this new world and find the work that nourishes you, that is meaningful, that gives you that same emotion that you would have had decades ago as a young collector? It's, uh, you're right, it's very difficult and I think about it all the time. And I also, it's just impossible for me to cover what is going on in the world at this point. I had to make that decision. I can't travel the way I would like to, to see everything, which I still would like to. So I'm still, again, all the time focusing on the story. And I, at this point, focus on the time that I was in ten, sort of the last 30 years. And I'm not going that much forward unless it fits directly into the story I am telling. The story I want to tell through my collection. But your collection is not looking backwards, it's looking forward. It is, uh, yes, it is looking forward. But when you ask me, where do I go today? And I say, I can't really cover it. I do go at this point and look still at artists, what they're doing today. I'm very interested and sometimes very disappointed because it is so difficult to find really serious artists at this point. Maybe you find them more in, I mean, maybe serious, I shouldn't be so critical, but maybe serious in what I'm looking for. Well, it's a very in large... My issues, yeah. It, it, it's a very large art world. Um, but do you work with advisors or uh, curators to make those choices, or are no. you making those choices? I have made the choices always by myself. With, over the last few years, I am with the director of the museum and the Center for Curatorial Studies. I discuss acquisitions. This exception of something that I... I feel like I'm going to buy it whether he thinks it's in our budget or not. <laughs> and I like it so much. Do you feel that you've ever made any mistakes? Oh, yes. I had missed many mistakes. For example, there are artists I didn't collect even though I could have. But I used to, especially in the late 80s and 90s, even 2000, I'm used to looking at an artist for a while, think about it and wait for a year or two see two more shows after that and then and then see but now if you if you don't make a decision right away then you two years later it might be at a gallery I can never afford to right. do that I, I like to think of uh, somebody talking to me about mistakes in their collecting life uh, some few okay. weeks ago and uh, I, I like to think of them not as mistakes, but as learning experiences. Okay. Learning experience, yes. I, I, used to, I used to come only on weekends, not, not all the time, a few, uh, four or five times a year here. I used to live in Mexico City. And so when I come a weekend, I absolutely wanted to buy something. I went uh, for a weekend, I did the galleries, and I wanted to buy, and occasionally I bought something without really thinking about it and what it meant and not I just well I think it's normal that some collectors yeah, go out and they just want to buy something and they say why did I do this it's, yeah. it, it, it's very rigorous to have uh, an extremely yeah. articulated program yeah. and stick to it because personally uh, I think that the, the sort of uh, the, the back alleys of collecting are often where you have the most fun I mean, you've got to run down those alleys and kind of take those, those detours. I, you know, I could tell you a story that I have been considered having done the wrong thing 
forever. Everybody was laughing. I used to collect uh, during the time in the late 70s, early 80s, pattern art was very much uh, with Holly Solomon Gallery. And I just loved it when I came because first of all, I was free from Heiner Friedrich. People were later on in the 80s when it came about, they were laughing. They were laughing that I collected that, that I collected pattern art. And I kept saying at the museum to everybody, you will see, it will come back. It is very important because, you know, gallery owners couldn't go on uh, um, and collectors couldn't, and artists above all, couldn't go on collecting white paintings, black paintings, boxes, and so on. So these artists went out and they said, well, let's go and we do it. It was really an important moment in history. They went to meditate to India and came back with it and did these colorful paintings and freed themselves out of the and, strict rules. And clearly, cathartically, you've broken free of Heine Friedrich at that point. Okay, he was no longer exerting the uh, control you're that he was You're absolutely right. I was kind of free. I was suddenly free. But I want you to know that next there are five exhibitions going up in Europe on pattern art. I have talked to a curator next year. There is going to be a revival of uh, pattern and decoration. Every, and every, every dog 30 has years, every uh, 30, 40 years later. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really happy about that because I've, uh, we will see how great it is considered art. Yeah. That's fun, but it was such an important moment, you know, at that. To but, but it's also a very interesting point that you felt very strongly about collecting that work at that time. Yes. It wasn't necessarily being institutionally propped up or, you know, supported by your peer group. No. But you had the courage of your convictions to collect it. And, and now, three decades later, it's having a revival. So I think that's very instructive in terms of collecting and having a very independent view on what you collect and why you collect it. I wouldn't have dared to tell Heiner Friedrich, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, but it's great that you felt, I mean, this is the central theme of what we're yeah. trying to get to in talking to each of our interviewees, is about their passion for collecting, which takes very different paths. And there is no correct or wrong way to do this. This is very much about you making sense of your own journey through the collection, yeah. through the act of collecting. And then after pattern, I there was the, the moment of AIDS, and I had not collected photography. I had started collecting Cindy Sherman conceptual photography, but I uh, started said I this is I have to. So I collected Maplethorpe. I and you began, made an enormous commitment to Robert's work. Yes, and, and have one of the great collections in the world. I, I did it when nobody else collected, but it was very. It was for me. I started with the photography, and then portrait, and then body parts, and then nudes, and then black nudes, and then from there on I went, I got more courageous, but it took me years and did you to do fight that, myself through it. Did, did you do that as a commitment to Robert's work, or was it a political commitment? Was it no. important? Was an important social commitment that you would support a photographer who was openly gay and who subsequently very sadly died of AIDS? Yeah. It was a social commitment. It was a social commitment. Uh, it was a social, it, that's how it started yeah. out. It started out because I felt this has to be in history. And it wasn't political, it became political much later. It wasn't political when it was at uh, Whitney, it came political after it was in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. In many ways, my, appro my, appropriated for another conversation. When I met my husband, like, I want to hear a funny thing, when I met my husband 25 years ago, 
and I told him that you know, my major interest is art and uh, and my husband used to before he retired was the head of Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati he said to me oh my god it's not possible that I fall in love with somebody who collects maple syrup <laughs> and so it you should was, have told him it was just very good fortune and serendipity he does respect what I do, but like my late husband, he does. He is not part of it. He just he likes me doing what makes me happy, and supports it, but has given up the jealousy about it. Being jealous, that's my he's major. Not, he's not jealous of the collection. Not any. No, not the collection of the of my interest, of right. my serious commitment and interest. Your, your collection is accessible to us all. It's housed yeah. at Bard at CCS and has a range of extraordinary programming around it, which is an incredible gift, not only to students and scholars, but to the public alike. What was the impetus for you thinking about making the collection public and gifting it to all of us in that way? I always wanted to do that. Uh, the impetus, I felt like for me, having I grew up in, the, we had lost, as I told you, we had lost our home uh, in uh, Munich. I uh, I grew up in a small town, and to go out and have a place where you find a way, like the the church of Ludwig Castle, which was my famous, and find peace and happiness there, and dialogue and history, and I felt like I'm one day I'm going to give it to a small town that cannot my collection that cannot afford their own collection. So kids like I would have access to a place where they can escape to or be living. So again, and somewhere that's safe in a way. Yeah, again, making people where you can safe. go and can dream and fantasize and find another reality of your yeah. own a reality you live at home. In your acceptance speech for the 2016 Distinguished Service to the Visual Arts Award by Art Table, Mm -hmm. You said art is the truest expression of what it means to be human. Yes. Which I think is a Absolutely. fabulous and succinct uh, analysis of what art means and yeah. should mean for all of us. I want to ask you, how has that belief informed your personal collecting style? Do you believe that you are an intuitive collector or an intellectual or an analytical collector? How do you describe yourself? psychologically as a collector. I think today I'm a bit of everything. As I said, when I started out with Heiner Friedrich, I was all instructed and fascinated. And so I learned more and more. So I still believe that you have to be intuitive. You have to be. But you also have to know history. You have to know history. And I think you should know history far back, which um, so you can actually trust your intuition but I, I truly believe that every uh, curator every person in art is on one if they really care about this have to use their senses too and I want to re uh, quote here a friend of mine by the name of Hans a poet German poet by the name of Hans Magnus Enzensberger who uh, once said he was asked whether he's intuitive or intellectual when he writes it. And he said, this is a very stupid question. I cannot think without seeing, and I cannot see without thinking. So I, he meant, yeah, well, it, it says it for itself, so. If I asked you to 
One of the central um, questions about being a collector is the idea of what connoisseurship means in terms of training your eye over a period of time, over decades. If I asked you to give me a synopsis of what connoisseurship means to you, how, how would you describe that to me? You have to look. You constantly have to go and look. Because if you don't, even when you're bored, when I know I go and do 15 galleries and I in 12, I see nothing. I see so much what is not, or it doesn't either speak to me, to my, you know, when we're talking intuitive, or it, I realize it's just not good. I can think about it later on. And if it comes back, I say, oh, you missed this one. You should go back and look at it again. Have you developed so a sense? Look, look, look. Have you developed a sense over your collecting career that if something niggles away at you or remains, if something sticks with you in a particular way, you have to return to it and readdress Even it? Even when I hate it, I have to Even go. when you dislike it? When I dislike it, then I have to really look. Because that's where I used to make, when I was younger, the mistakes. When I dislike it. That's, because that, that's <laughs> great advice, I think, for yeah. any... So, so if you were able to time travel to give your younger self as a collector some advice, what would it be? What have you learned that would be most important for you to understand as your younger self to understand that you now understand as a collector? As a young collector today, first of all, as I said before, you have to look for a lot. I think uh, select half a dozen galleries or a dozen galleries and talk, talk to learn through the gallery owner what it is all about that artist represents or wants to tell. You cannot learn it in art fairs. You cannot only go and see something. It's just, I don't think it's part, part, even for me, it's still difficult if I go through an art fair today to sort out and after I done it for an hour or two, I see too much, I lose the sense. So you need to have a gallery connection, people you trust that you can talk to and they will tell you why this artist is good if you like it. So, And then you can make a decision about yeah. whether they're right or not. Yeah. It's interesting, it, we're sitting in an art fair having this conversation. Yes. And the rise of the art fairs in the last 30 years has probably been one of the most important factors in changing the market, defining the market. Yeah. And you're actually saying that you've spoken very eloquently about Heiner Friedrich and Holly Solomon to very different dealers, but who clearly had a very important impact on yeah. your education yes. and your eye. Oh, yeah. And I'm very happy to hear you speak to the fact that you think it's very important to find a dealer or dealers that you have that kind of communication with and that you have learned from them. Oh, absolutely. I think they will come back. I'm totally convinced. I do not think you'll become a passionate collector about anything in art fairs. You have to be that already and then you can go back and maybe you find a little thing that you would have not, you would have missed because you can't do 100 galleries anymore or you can't, you don't have the time or so. So I do think that will come back. I, I really think yeah, that, yeah, that dialogue with an, especially a serious gallery owner is extremely important. I truly believe that. You know, also as, as a sort of a cultural well of knowledge and memory in any generation. If you go to, there are something like 800 galleries in Manhattan alone, if you That's choose impossible. which galleries to go to, and you have your short list, and you go to them and you trust their eye, 
just by short circuiting that and going to six galleries, you might be accessing three or four hundred years yeah. of expertise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do, th and that's why I think the smaller galleries where you have a dialogue with the gallery owner or the gallery person is the future. Again, it's not past. It well, will come back. Their pendulums always swing, as we know, socially, politically, and culturally. We're living in a very particular moment in many respects. Yes. And one has to believe that uh, the ecosystem of the gallery world cannot be sustained without that kind of expertise yes. and younger galleries, smaller galleries, uh, more, you know, more focused galleries. So I think they're absolutely vital to the ecosystem of what we all care deeply about. I, I fully agree. For example, I've been walking through the fair here. I saw an artist, I do not want to mention the name here, in one of the super big galleries that I had when he had the first exhibition and the second I bought a work. I would not buy work. I think he's now, I looked at it, it looked for me. The work looked empty. I think the artists are, like gallery owners, pressed to produce and produce and produce work that is in instead of having the time to wait, even if you miss out, as yeah. I mentioned before a few times. Well, time is a great luxury, but also a great editor. Absolutely. Um, one final question for you. Uh, if you had the opportunity to select a single artwork and you were going to be living in a room with one single artwork for the rest of your life, it could be a historical piece, it could be from your own collection, it could be from anywhere in the world, any collection in the world, what single artwork would you choose to spend your life with? It would probably be a Rembrandt. A specific Rembrandt or any Rembrandt? It could be almost any, but it could be one of the great portraits. A self-portrait or a portrait? No, a portrait. A portrait. A Rembrandt portrait. Fantastic. Yeah. The truth is that I am getting more out of it than I can give. That's the truth. Because I couldn't live with all the works. But seeing others, having contact with students and curators has enriched my life in immense ways, immensely. Well, Marlies, it's been an incredible pleasure to sit down with Thanks. you today and talk to you about your experience as a great collector and one of the most respected collectors in the world. It's been an extraordinary pleasure and thank you so much for taking the time to share your history and your passion and your knowledge with us. It's been Wonderful to have you on Collect Wisely, to learn so much from you and from your experience of collecting. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sKny.com you can also follow the Sean Kelly gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram Facebook and Twitter cheers